all of us have our secrets. I don't, I don't want any of you to feel like I know them, although it's possible that I do. Well, we all have our secrets, and some of our secrets we're very concerned will ever come out because to be quite humiliating, and some of our secrets are not necessarily dark. They're secrets which, uh, perhaps out of humility, we, we don't necessarily want others to know about. But as much as, to a great extent, we could have looked at the last third or so, maybe even a little more, probably maybe more, I would say at least from, from Yaakov, at least from Bayetze, we could have noted that there was this constant subtext beyond the, actually informing the story, and that was the, the dreams. There's been this constant state of dreams coming in, again, multiple dreams going in. Yaakov has one dream, Yaakov has another dream, and then going, of course, to Yosef's dreams, pair of dreams, going on to the different workers in Paro's house, going on to Paro's dreams, and so on. So we, we have this long subtext of dreams, and then to what extent does an individual concern themselves with making the dreams come true? One of the things which is important is that one of the dreams uh, that Yaakov sees, he sees it absolutely within the realm of prophecy, and I think we have every reason to believe that when Yosef looked at his dreams and dreams that he heard, he also sees them as as prophetic. But as I said, as much as dreams have been a subtext, there's a, there's another subtext here that I that I don't think is as often identified, which I'm going to spend time with today and. Perhaps I can be uh, accused of stringing together a bunch of things which maybe should not have necessarily been put together. But I think that once we realize it, you'll see that there is this other subtext. And sometimes this correlation with the dreams, and that is the subtext of secrets, is that there's been secrets going all the way through that... You know, sometimes one individual has a secret, and if one individual has a secret, then maybe it remains a secret. But if the secret is shared then uh, it, it changes a little bit by two people sharing a secret. If the two people act upon the secret, then you change from a secret to a conspiracy. And uh, if the conspiracy is dastardly, then you've moved over into illegal activities, finally getting back to uh, what, what you were desperately seeking. And what we're going to start with is one of those... And we'll read the verse first and then we'll remind ourselves of, of, of what it is that happened. Yaakov is over here on his deathbed, and I, and I have to remind us all of something. And that is that Yaakov is on his deathbed, and he comes and he tells his children, come around and I will inform you what will be at the end of days. Those of us who were subject, I know this will sound terrible, to a yeshiva education, will have had this section colored by an assumption, a problem, and a resolution and which is all within rabbinic Judaism. I mean, the truth is there's also another voice in rabbinic Judaism, and it's that other voice that also needs to be identified. But l let me first tell you the, the problem and the solution, and then we'll decide if that really works or not. And that is, is that Yaakov says what's going to happen at the end of days. And then the question becomes, so when it says the end of days, the first assumption that we work with, which may be a very bad assumption, is that Yaakov is about to tell them what's going to be in the Messianic age. 
and then he doesn't tell him what's going to happen in the Messianic age. So therefore, it's, therefore, the rabbis build in, again, this whole narrative and say he wants to tell them, but suddenly he loses his clairvoyancy. So he loses his, or his, his prophecy. He loses his ability to see the future, so then he switches and he tells them other things which have nothing to do with the end of days, except for one problem. And this is what I want to stress. It never says in the text of the Torah that he loses his prophecy or his clairvoyancy. That is because of an assumption of some kind of uh, bait and switch. That I said, end of days. The question is, what does end of days mean? It's quite possible that end of days means at the end of the Egyptian exile. That what's going to happen at the end of the exile, when you're going to enter into the land. And there's actually a lot of treatment about the different places that they'll live in Israel and how the tribes will survive and so on. And it seems to be that there was no bait and switch. The Yaakov says, I'm going to tell you certain things. And he tells them certain things. And Yaakov's not missing a beat. He's not missing anything. So I'm just saying, just pay attention to what we do. We, again, we, we got, if you want, we got Rashid, which is not the worst thing to happen to us. I mean, if we, if, if we would know every single verse through Rashi's perspective, we would be very, very intelligent and very informed. But you still nonetheless need to know the difference between what the text actually says, what the Torah actually says, and what Rashi told us is the interpretation. And in this particular case, we think that there's an attempt and there's a failure and then there's a plan B, and it could be none of that's there. Rather, Yaakov knows exactly what he's saying and let's now go back and read what he says to Shimon and Levi. Just to remind you, a moment before this, Yaakov turns to Ruvain and says some devastating things to him. And that's the other thing which is somewhat, I don't want to use the word amusing, but somewhat ironic, is that we call it this the brachot that Yaakov gave. There are not all that many brachot over here. There's, there's far more critique than there is brachot. Unless at the very end it says, after all of the tribes are dealt with, at the end it says, and then Yaakov blessed them. So it could be a very genetic blessing, but not the things that we normally call the brachot, but rather that comet which comes afterwards. So after Ruvain got told that he's lost his leadership position, or maybe even positions, then Yaakov turns to Shimon Valevi. And it's very interesting because Shimon and Levi, he turns to them as a pair, and He's going to tell us, going back to my introduction, he's going to tell them, tell us about a secret that they had. Shimon Valevi Achim Klechamas Mechorotehim Bisodam, with their secret, Al Tavo Nafshi. I don't want to be a part of their secret. The continuation of their secret is actually the conspiracy that takes place. Right? Bikalam Al Tichad Kvodi, Kiba Apam Hergu Ishu Vertsanan Ikrushor. And then Yaakov, instead of blessing curses, arur apam ki az, ve'evratam ki kashata, achalkim biyakov afitzem biyisrael. Now, I deliberately didn't ex- translate each and every word for the best reason is that the brachot are quite challenging, knowing exactly how to translate each and every word over here. But the gist of this is Yaakov says, I did not want to be part of your secret, I don't want to be part of your conspiracy, and things that you've done out of anger, you've killed someone, and if you've uprooted a shore which sounds like a, like a bull. And then he curses their anger, and he actually says at the end that these need to be divided. So it's very interesting that of the 12 tribes, he produces two of them together. You know, even Menashe and Ephraim, who now become have a status of tribes, he could have... Uh, he could have put those two together, but no, Shimon and Levi are put together, and he says, but they need to be separated. The Haktava Kabbalah, source number two, tells us, Bisodam in their secret, 
מה שמדובר בחשאי, things which are said when whispered. So that's a good thing about secrets. Sometimes to tell a secret to somebody, you have to channel your fourth grade selves and you have to go over and whisper in somebody's ear to tell them, to tell them a secret. And that's what he says. מה שמדובר בחשאי, בין מספר אנשים, So it's very interesting, he has to define what a sod is, what a secret is, but he puts on this, this wonderful um, texture to it that the secrets need to be told secretly, otherwise they're not full secrets. And if, if we don't remember or know exactly what it is that he's referring to, he's, it, it's that when the story of Dina took place, and you have Shechem and you have Hamar, and you have the family approaching the Yaakov family in order to try to arrange a marriage, and then Shimon and Levi, they conspire, they, between the two of themselves, have this plan, and then they go and they wipe out a city, and even though at the time Yaakov expressed his pragmatic concerns, how can you do such a thing, we're very small in number and we could be, suffer the consequences, it seems to be that over here Yaakov is expressing not just his pragmatic concern, but rather his moral concern for what they've done, and essentially saying, I don't want a part of you, I don't want to be part of you. But he also says something else, which is, I don't have to say is very astute, but it's It's prophetic, because I, that's exactly my point. Yaakov knows exactly what he's talking about, and that is that sometimes two people on their own can be okay, but when you put these two together, then you end up having trouble, meaning Yaakov is essentially saying, you know, that's the kid I don't want you playing with, you know, and, and they're both his sons, which makes it more interesting, and they're a pair, and they're, very, you know, they're close in age, and they do things together, and Yaakov's saying, that's devastating. Okay. The Ketav HaKabalah then continues after telling us a little bit about the secrets. And sometimes people go and they reveal secrets, things that were told secretly or as a whisper, and so on. And he, gives different, and he uses different words over here to explain different things which are done secretly. So I, I do want to go back to Yaakov's life. Yaakov's whole life has been involved in some place between you can decide now, secrets or conspiracies. Before Yaakov was born, there was a secret which was told about him, and that secret was in the, in the form of a dream, which therefore we have this correlation at this point between the dream that Rivka receives and the secret that she lives with. When she walks around with the secret, we don't know if she ever told anybody the complete vision that she had. We suspect that she told it to Yaakov, and after she tells it to Yaakov, then it turns into a conspiracy, which is exactly the point. Then as Yaakov dresses up his ace of going to try to take the, the blessings, but realize that there's a secret which is there behind, which is really going to be the starting point. Later on, one suspects that when Leah does almost the exact thing back to Yaakov that he had done to his father, and she dresses up as her sister, that again, that there's a secret there between the two of them, and maybe love involved in as well, which again has turned into a conspiracy. So therefore, again, there are the secrets turning into conspiracies, which are interesting. I don't know how many I need to to go through right now. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get to a lot more of them as we proceed. But I, again, I'm just pointing out that from the very beginning of Yaakov's life, even slightly before, there have been secrets all along. And, and in Yaakov's entire life, there will be secrets that he's a part of, there'll be secrets that are kept from him, and there will be secrets that he suffers because of, and there'll be secrets that he passes on. So I just essentially gave you the whole class, but I need to now go into a little bit more details. Jerry, Jerusalem is good for you. <laughs>
The Ramban, in source number three, raises that exact point. Always before raising your hand, this is rebuke for all of you. Always before raising your hand and asking a question, always look at the next source, because there's actually a a logical flow to uh, these things, okay? And actually, if you want to sound smart, you could just look at the next source and then raise your hand and say, listen, I was thinking. (laughs) Just read everything everything beforehand. That that works as well. The, The Ramban, so let's now go back. There's another secret, which itself is a conspiracy, and that is the secret of the sale of Yosef which, again, that's something which perhaps causes more pain in Yaakov's life than anything else. And Yaakov there, that secret is ostensibly kept from him. So one of the things that we wonder about, was Yaakov ever informed about this particular secret? So therefore, we'll take a look at the Ramban in source number three. And the Ramban says that, V'yadabru elav et kol divrei Yosef that the brothers told Yaakov all the words of Yosef. So I'm going to remind you that I'm going to remind you that when Yaakov arrives in Lavan's house, Yaakov is carrying a secret. And what's the secret? The secret was the secret that he had shared with his mother that turned into a conspiracy where he dressed up as his brother and now his brother wants to kill him. And it says that Yaakov comes and tells Lavan all the things that had happened. So how far back does he go? Does he tell him? Oh, by the way, I'm not a very honorable individual and I dressed up as my brother and so on. So we were were concerned then when it said he told him all these things. Um, My suspicion is that he did tell him because right afterwards Lavan responds, oh, you really are my flesh and blood. (laughs) And and we, we seem to have a great deal in common. And later on, when Leah dresses up as Rachel, then uh, he says, listen, we don't do this in our place. Put the younger one before the older one. And it very much sounds like Lovin knows of what he is speaking. So again, I just want to now give a parallel to that. When Yosef tells the brothers, now go back and you know tell my father this and this. So it says that he tells that that he says everything Yosef said. Now, how far back did he go? When he says, hi, Ani Yosef, right? The one that you sold? So hold on. Did, he, did, did the brothers just now say, tell the whole story? Were they completely forthcoming? Or do you, as all of us do, when we tell over stories, do we tell them over in ways which are most beneficial for ourselves? Because I'm going to say it again, that we all have secrets and we have secrets that we prefer not to share. And even when we tell truths, sometimes we tell half-truths, and we don't want to necessarily reveal everything. So the Ramban, who doesn't spell all of this out, is intrigued, intrigued by, by that exact problem. And instead of asking the question and answering it, he simply says, Yir Eli, it seems to me, Alderech HaPshat, that based the Pshat in Torah is, Shelo Hugad Liyakov Kol Yamav, the Ramban says, it seems to me, based on the text itself of the Torah, that Yaakov never did know about the sale of Yosef. Now, you have a little bit of a problem. The problem is, so what did he think? Which means, I mean, meaning that there's like some real important missing information. Look, I, I, I want to go backwards a moment. When Yaakov finds out that Yosef is dead. Okay, we know he's not really dead, but when he finds out that he's dead, and it happens around the place of Shechem, what would have gone through our minds is not that a wild animal killed him, but rather that maybe somebody related to Shechem had now taken revenge. If I had to look around for people with motive, I would even be thinking about Esav. Esav, it's not a nice thought. 
But Esav is somebody who also had, you know, promised to do damage to Yaakov. And maybe now Yosef, wandering alone, has provided the opportunity for those who had motive. I mean, isn't this the, I mean, you don't have to channel your inner uh, Sherlock Holmes to try to uh, get to this, who had motive to do damage to Yaakov's family. And if Yosef is wandering around by himself, so then maybe somebody would act upon this. So I always found that interesting that he goes for the brother's story. Oh, it must have been a wild animal. Why? They found the bloody coat. A coat can become bloody in many ways, right? So it's, it's really interesting that it's almost as if that Yaakov chooses to take that, by the way. Let's just say, let's just say somebody related or, or wanted to get revenge for Shechem, so then you go back and you blame somebody else for all of this, and who's that? Shimon Valevi. Which means that Shimon and Levi's responsibility in this in the attempted killing, and it's actually true, by the way, because when they, when Yosef comes and says that one said to his brother, so Shimon and Levi are always identified as the one and the brother, because these two, when they're together, they make a great deal of trouble. And of course, the other issue is that once you solve your problems by killing people, that that becomes you know part of your arsenal. Oh, we got a problem. You know how do we solve a problem called Yosef? And then the answer becomes, okay, let's just do to him what we did to Shem, and that, and that becomes simple. So over here, the Ramban now is trying to think about what Yaakov must have thought. He thinks that he lost his way, which, by the way, is correct. Instead of that anonymous man who points him in the correct direction. But rather, when he got lost, he got kidnapped, and then he ended up being a slave in Egypt, and that's just what Yaakov always assumed, because Yaakov's mind could not possibly entertain, again, the possibility that it was his own children involved in this particular deed. So the, the Ramban continues, and, it's, and he writes, Ki achiv The brothers, it was not in their interest, and they had no desire to say to that, oh, you know, by the way, there's this really funny thing we never mentioned to you. You remember how Yosef ended up in Egypt? Well, we kind of sold him. And, but it's okay, because we wanted to kill him. So this was, uh, <laughs> the, you know, uh, so he says, the, so the Ramban's pointing out this was not in their interest. Because they were terrified that Yaakov would be, would be incredibly upset with them and would curse them just as Yaakov ends up doing to the brothers who are lose, losers, Ruven, Shimon, and Levi, and at least in the Vayichi perspective. And, and the Ramban, who shares with me, apparently, an affinity to Yosef, writes, V'yosef b'musaro hatov And Yosef, with his good, um, he uses the word musar, with his, with his good... Um, Midot, with, with, with his good character, with his fine character. Yosef, with his fine character, would never reveal such things to cause a father to think that his kids are bad, even though they are. And that's why it required, by the end of his life, for the, well, sorry, after Yaakov had died, for the brothers now to come and say, oh, Dad said, don't do anything. We'll come back to that in a moment. And if Yaakov knew about the sale, that had Yaakov, re- sorry, had 
Yaakov known about this, then the brothers would have asked Yaakov to please say something to Yosef before he died, rather than claiming that Yosef said it after he died. I'm gonna, like I said, as I said, I know there's something not clear about this. I'll, I'll explain it now in a, in a second. In source number four, and this is going back to yet another secret, which we didn't, may not have realized, the Chizkuni talking about Vayiga Shalav Yehuda. And Yehuda approached, that's the parashat, Vayigash. Yehuda approaches Yosef. So now, when most of rabbinic tradition describes this, it talks about the strength of Yehuda, Yehuda representing this uh, eternally strong Jew. Now, you know that throughout history, we have not always been that strong Jew, so it's very important to create this persona. So Yehuda approaches, but the Chizkuni is trying to enter into the room which, by the way, I absolutely love. He enters into the room, and he's trying to picture the scene in his mind of how this is really playing out. Right? This is a very important tool to always be used when we're trying to understand the text. And he says, Right? Yehuda has to say, Yehuda can't do what Yosef does right afterwards and say, you know, everybody else get away. But what he's trying to get to is by Yigashilav is he gets very close. So why do you get very close? Now you could do it's an act of violence. You get in someone's face. But you, but 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 the Chizkuni understands that the reality is that Yehuda doesn't have that power against Yosef, who is you know of incredible power, and Yehuda himself had served as this collateral for Binyamin. Yehuda lafisha hu arevo. So he just now turned this dramatic Yehuda approaching, and he just turned it into a very into a very different conversation. The Yehuda goes over and he whispers to Yosef, and he says, "Listen, I'm in a great deal of trouble." <laughs> and he goes through the whole story, and I, and I guaranteed my father going to take him home. And now, so it's real again. He just now turned this Yosef Yehuda confrontation into a very soft-spoken, secretive conversation right between the two of them. So as I said, when, when I said before that there's secrets and lots of secrets in this whole section, I don't believe that any of you would have imagined right away that that was this, one of the secrets. But again, it goes through that we read the text the way that Chazal sometimes wants us to, and the word Vayigash Elav actually does lend itself to this interpretation in order to come close and to speak in a, in a certain way. Um, once we go there, now look at source number five, when Yosef says, Gishuna Eli, which is very much similar to Vayigashe Lev Yehuda, and now, and now Yosef says, you know, after the whole speech, Gishuna Eli, now he says to all the brothers, come close to me, Again, the same thing. He wanted to say over those words, I'm Yosef, who you sold. And he wanted to whisper it. He didn't want to say it out loud. Now, now, hold on to that a second, because something really interesting just now happened when we put these two sources together. It's that this whole big confrontation that we thought was really loud is Yehuda speaking very softly, and then you know Yosef actually doing some mirroring and now responding and speaking very softly, the, and, and realize the Chizkuni and the Bechor are from the same tradition. There's a lot of overlap between the two of them. They're aware of, uh, one is aware of the others, the later one, the latter one is aware of the earliest commentary. And Bechashei, Pen Yishma Adam Mi Bechutz, 
Remember, Yosef sends everybody away. Well, we're going to come back to this in a second. Yet another one of the Baliatos vote who's also, all of them are in the room. All the Baliatos vote are in the room. And it's really interesting. But what he's saying is that he doesn't want the people outside to hear this. And therefore, he whispers at this point. Um, if you look at source number six now, the dots that came to me, Baliatos vote, going back to the same scene. Gishunai lai vayigshu. So I hope that you love this, because again, this is one of the indications that the Balei had also watched a lot of movies as kids, and uh, everybody is out, so what are they They're listening by the door. So that, that's, what, that's what he just now said. They're, all, they're, they're told to leave, and something's really interesting happening inside, and they all have their ears to the door. So therefore, what does Yosef have to do on the other side of the door? He has to whisper. And therefore, again, we're back to this point of whispering our secrets, because even when we have secrets, we don't necessarily want our secrets to come out. And then he says something which I actually touched last week, and I said the opposite, because I didn't notice this until some point Shabbos morning. And you will skip a couple of lines, and he says that he said all of this, and then you'll notice again, he says, bichashai, that he tells this over as a whisper, which at this point should not be a surprise to us. Dover acher, Another interpretation. Originally, or initially, he says out loud, I'm Yosef, your brother. And he doesn't want to say anything about the sale in front of Binyamin, Achiv, and I assume that this is also something that you never necessarily thought all the way through. And, and as I said, I mentioned last week, how would Binyamin respond when he says, hi, I'm Yosef, your brother you sold. And he's standing there. Why, Yosef is still alive? That's one thought. And the other, you sold him? Like, and, and if I were Yosef, if I were Binyamin, I'd get very scared right now. Because, but listen to what he's saying, is that Yosef doesn't want the brothers embarrassed, even in front of Binyamin. So therefore, you know, we asked before the Ramban, saying that Yaakov never knows about the sale. He's claiming Binyamin never knew about the sale. And, and Yosef makes sure he's not going to know about the sale, and therefore wants to save his brother's dignity. The meaning, that itself is so interesting. If you talk about trying to make the family whole again, Whoever knows about it, yes, I am Yosef, you did this too. But not even let Binyamin know about this. You know, you wait on the side over there, right? And, you know, take some more dessert, right? You just, you just wait, wait, wait on the side. And he doesn't say it in front of him. So I, I found this interesting, or actually I found this fascinating, but it's going back to my point about secrets. You have secrets and you have conspiracies, and who's going to know about the secrets? So what we just now saw is, like, in this reconstruction of the reconciliation of Yosef and the brothers, we see a lot of secretive behavior or whispering taking place because there are secrets over here that we have to be very careful about to what extent these secrets are going to become known. That Kedi Yitzchak goes in the same direction. Amar lehem bechashai ani Yosef achichem. He says again that he must have said this secretly because it would have been an embarrassment to them and would not have wanted people to know it. Okay. Now getting back to what the Ramban pointed at before, and that's source number eight. And this goes back to Vayichi. They realize what their father did. Yosef's going to hate us. And now is going to be payback time. Now he's going to get us back for all the things that we did. 
Yosef and they commanded Yosef, which is fascinating, how they can command him. They can only command him if they do what they're about to do, and they speak with the paternal voice. They speak with the voice of Yaakov. And they say, which means we're ventriloquists, or Yaakov is ventriloquist, and he's talking through our mouths, and this is what Yaakov commanded you, and this is fascinating. The brothers were so scared, they say that Yaakov gave this command, and let us at least be slaves to you. And I'm not going to go through the whole section, but I will ask you, when do you offer to be a slave? You put that on the table when you think that there's some other alternative that you prefer to avoid. And apparently the brothers are convinced that Yosef is going to kill them and says, at least let us just be slaves. But it's, but it's interesting that they say Yaakov said. Now, if Yaakov said, that means that Yaakov knew. And if Yaakov knew, so that's a whole game changer. Now, the rabbis in the Talmud say, what are you talking about Yaakov knew? Look at source 9. Ba'amu Rabbi Elam, Mishom Rabbi Lezeb, Rabbi Shimon. Mutar lo ladam l'shanot bidvar hashalom. Sometimes in order to make peace or to keep the peace, you're allowed to change things. Change is, is a very interesting term. Shenemar, as it says, Avichatsiva, Kotumul Yosef Anasana. The Gemara uses this as an example of when you're allowed to tell something which is not true in order to keep peace. Over here the peace they were keeping, they were keeping their heads connected to their bodies, and uh, they wanted to stay alive, and therefore they lied and said something which never happened which means what they're presenting is that, again, I'm reading into this a little bit, that Yaakov never knew, right? That, that's, Yaakov never knew. <clears throat> because if Yaakov knew, that's the Ramban's point. If Yaakov knew, then he would have said something himself. Why did the brothers have to say it? The brothers are claiming, oh yeah, by the way, right before Yaakov died, we went over and told him, and he said, oh, don't, don't take revenge. Now, why doesn't Yaakov just say that to Yosef himself? Which means... If they're going to say, oh, and Yaakov said, Yaakov should not have said, it's like saying, I had a dream last night that you're going to give me a million dollars. So you should then say to me, well, if you're going to have a dream, I should have had the dream, I'm going to give you a million dollars, and not you have the dream, which means me having the dream is a little self-serving. The, the brothers say, oh, Yaakov said to us. It doesn't make any sense, Yaakov said to us. Yaakov should have said it to him. By the way, the million dollars is still on the table, just, just, just to make that clear. So if you look at Rashi's commentary to the Gemara, Avichatsiva. Yaakov never said this, but they changed their words because of Darke Shalom, which means they lied. Now, it's interesting, because that's Rashi on the Gemara. Rashi on the Chumash, though, opens up a door that he, that's not there, at least in the Gemara, or even his commentary in the Gemara. Look at 11. Because Yaakov never commanded this. Why? That Yosef was not, they, he, he, he in his eyes never suspected Yosef would do this. Now, th- there is the possibility to read this Rashi into the understanding that Yaakov did know. Yaakov knows that Yosef was sold, but he never suspected that Yosef would take revenge. If Yosef wanted to take revenge, he had many opportunities to take revenge. So it says that Yaakov never suspected Yosef would behave like that. On the other hand, you could read within Rashi that he never commanded it because lo nechshad Yosef be'inav without necessarily knowing the story. And I'm saying, I think it actually leads more to his own. I don't want to work so hard. Because your question before is, hold it. 
Did any of the commentaries say, yeah, look look at Rashi on source 11. Sorry, on source 12. Uvarit sonan ikrushor, right? Going back to Shimon and Levi, their secret, Bisodam, their secret, Yaakov doesn't want to be a part of, is that they uprooted a shore. A shore is a bull. Later on, when, ya- when Moshe gives the blessings to the sons, Yosef is called ashore, and therefore what we have over here is our theory of conservation of shorim. Now, by the way, it's not so simple. What? It's not so simple what exactly ashore, ashore means over here, but nonetheless Rashi is connecting it. If you look at source number 13, the Targum Yerushalmi, and actually, it's a little sharper. The Targum Yonatan says that with their anger, they sold Yosef. It's, it's actually not just that they wanted to uproot or maybe kill Yosef. It's that absolutely going to the point of, uh, of the sale of Yosef, that, that according to this read, again, which Rashi embraces as well, that yes, Yaakov knew about the sale of Yosef which means that we have at least a, a secret now which is revealed. Speaking of secrets and speaking of Yosef, and speaking of Yosef who sometimes reveals secrets, I have to go back to something and a, a debt we're going to pay to Michael. In source number 14, y- Yosef is renamed by Paro. Paro shame Yosef, tzaf not paneach. And he names Yaakov, sorry, he names Yosef, Targum Onkelus writes, what does this mean? Now he's translating this into Aramaic. The person who reveals secrets. Now this is not so simple for a couple of reasons. Let's read a little bit among the commentaries and then hopefully we'll understand those reasons. In uh, the Targum Yonatan as well, I have 16, the, the Ketri Yonatan back in Hebrew, the person who makes public that which is secret. Which is interesting to talk about. Yosef is the one who reveals secrets. Yosef is the one, going back to the earliest time that we know about him, he's the one who tells things to his father about the brothers. Yosef is the one who reveals all kinds of things. So hold 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 on to that for a moment. Rashi writes, Tsafnat Paneach, Mifareshatsfunot. He explains what's secretive or secret. The Ain Lefaneach Dimion Lemikra. And Rashi admits that the word Lefaneach is one of these words that is never used again in Tanakh, and therefore it's not exactly clear in Hebrew what the word Lefaneach means. The Rashbam writes, Tsafnat Paneach, Kitaragumo. Take a look at the Targum, which is very interesting because the Talmud says to reveal secrets. The Lashon Mitzrimhu. And he says, and this is Egyptian. But, you, but that's, very, that's a little difficult to say. Because if it's, if it's Egyptian, then why did the Targum translate it from the Hebrew? The Ibn Ezra writes, If this is Egyptian, then the Ibn Ezra says, I have no idea what it means, because I don't know Egyptian. The imhumiturgemet lo yodano shem Yosef. And if it is being translated, then we don't know Yosef's name. Which means we don't, then we don't know what he was actually called in Egypt. We just know the meaning of it, but we don't know what he was called. pirish paneach kasher hamitargem aramit. And he's assuming that paneach means whatever the Targum says it means. Vuhu mila miruba. Source 20, the Radak, Tzafna Paneach, Lashon Mitzrihu. 
כמו שנקרא נבוכנצר. והמפרשים שפרשו של לשון הקודש, תמהו. איך קרא פרו שם בלשון הקודש? And all the commentaries are called it Hebrew, then how exactly does Paro know Hebrew? So, yes, Michael, you like all of this? Yes. I love it. Okay. Here, there's a background to all of this. There's a, there's a, there's a background to all of this. The, the background is, is that Michael told me what Safna Panech really means in Egyptian. Go ahead. Oh, God says this one shall Right. The God says this one shall live. Yeah, so there's, there's a, there is a problem with that, which I'll, which I'll tell you in a second. I did, I did, this time I did a little bit of homework. So in my newest book, I actually put a footnote in, quoting Michael by Tzofan Paneach. And my editor said, no, that's not correct. That's just not the latest studies in Egyptian. So I, then I erased it, and then I mentioned this in class a couple of weeks ago. And then I asked him, I said, can you tell me, send me you know, where you get it from? And he actually wrote the opposite that what Michael said is correct, that the God said that this will this one shall live. So I said, so I didn't, I didn't even bother with him, but I just removed the footnote that wasn't necessary, which is why I want to try to fix this now. Um, I, I do have the following, although in, in his work on Genesis in the Vulgate, St. Jerome is the Latin translator, Salvador Mundi, Savior of the World. They translate Safapaneach as Savior of the World. In Latin? Savior of the World. Latin? Yeah. In Latin, this Christian, this Christian interpretation, reinforcing the ancient concept of Joseph, is influenced by the Greek form of the name, and whatever it's written here is Greek to me. In the Septuagint, by the, I can't even read any of these words. This is at least suggested made by Wilhelm. Right, early Egyptologists have interpreted the name equivalent to the Coptic, the salvation of the age. Okay, after the decipherment of hieroglyphics, Egyptologists have interpreted the final amount of the name, Anach, as containing the Egyptian word, Nach, life. Notably, George Steindorf, this is, we're going back now to 1889, don't tell me you were in school in 1889, (laughs) offered a full reconstruction of, and now it gives this in funny language, the God speaks and he lives. Middle Egyptian pronunciation by Egyptologist Patrick Clark, however, has pointed out this interpretation's shortcomings, namely, the name type is unattested prior to 11th century BCE, while Joseph lived much earlier, and this name type always mentioned a specific deity and never the god. So he doesn't love this. I have no idea. It's all Greek to me. It's all whatever else. It's, it's all Egyptian to me. It's all Coptic to me. And... And I don't know, but but you at least do see one thing, and that is that. It, it, see, why is the interpretation so interesting? Is because Yosef is the one who knows the secrets. Yosef is the one who's living the secrets. Yosef is the one who's carrying around the secrets. Yosef is the one who knows how to interpret the secrets. So Yosef, on the one time, interprets the secrets; on the other time, he lives the life of a secret, which means he li- he lives m- much of his life holding on to this secret and not letting his father, not letting others know. And there's some very important idea that, as far as he's concerned, that this is, and it goes back to the dreams. That's what I'm saying again, the correlation to dreams and the secret is is interesting. The rabbis, for their part, on the one hand, love that this is part of this personality of Yosef. On the other hand, you, you do note that they they see the problem with saying this is what what it means, um, I, I actually like very much with what the Ramban says. 
Safna Paneach, and again, he raises Ibn Ezra's problems, you know, you can't be this, it can't be that. Amr Vavram, Imri Mila Mitzrit, Loyodani Perushov, Imitrogemit, Loyodanu Shem Yosef. Valdatri Shanim, Shamrim Hamafanech Ne Elmim, the one who interprets the secrets. Itachain Shakarlo Shem Nechmad Kaloshon Artso, Kishaalo, Oshayamila Yodat Safat Eretz Kanan. Which means it could be that his name was the Egyptian equivalent of Tzafnar Panach, of the one who reveals secrets, but it was in, in Egyptian. Power called him the revealer of secrets, and which in Hebrew it's Tzafnar Panach, which means it's, it's using the Hebrew interpretation, but it's not using the Egyptian, and the assumption, again, hold it, how, how can this be that, that someone's asking, but it's Egyptian, how can we know? Part, I'm going to say it again. Part of the problem has to do with the word paneach and the lack of understanding of it. But again, I want to push that all to the side because that doesn't concern me as much. What concerns me much more is the, the reason we want to associate this with Yosef is because Yosef is the one who reveals the secrets and he is the subject of a great secret. And that secret, which once again becomes a conspiracy, which is the sale of Yosef, which means there, this this desire to put this into the very essence of who Yosef is, is one which I think we should understand as well, which is why that's so tempting as well. Okay, let, let, let me go back now. We're up to source number 23, bottom of page 2, which goes back to the dreams, and the dreams, we, we're going to have to find the secrets over here as well. Um, Yosef has the dream. And then he has a second dream. Posuk Yud is, He tells his, his father and his brothers, and his father gives him a hard time. Am I and your mother and your brothers going to come back down to you? And his brothers were jealous of him. And, his, and, and he, on the other hand, held on to this. means he waited in anticipation for the dream to come true. Rav Chaim Paltiel, again, going back to the school of Tosfot, who seemed to see all kinds of secrets throughout this, they, I'm just going to go, The Rashi explains, what does it mean, that he waited in anticipation, when is this dream going to come true? Now, that's a problem, because it seems to contradict, and he says that his father gave him a hard time, like, why are you saying this? He then and again, I'm skipping a little bit, where it's bold. That first he came over and told the dream secretly to his father, and his father was very encouraging, and his father, yes, this is what's going to happen. Yes, your brothers will bow down to you, but it doesn't mean he has to say it to them. And again, I'm going to go on the other hand, something I've said before, and that is, and how did Yaakov's life work out when he's... You know, his mother has a secret and never tells anybody else, and the father doesn't know the mother. So Yosef seems to be saying, no, I'm going to tell everybody. Everyone's going to know. And as you realize, that doesn't work out all that well either. The Amik Davar in 25, the Nitziv, the Yeshiv, Reuven el and Reuven goes to the bar to get Yosef out. L'mshochet Yosef, b'chashai, secretly, l'hashiv v'laviv, where nobody else is around and there won't be any opposition. But source number 26, again going back to the cell of Yosef, he says they get them, they get the Isrim Kesef. Now, if you look later on in the Torah, you're going to see that the price of the evaluation of a servant is 30 shekel. So he wants to know, so why do you only get 20 for Yosef? I mean, I mean we're already going to sell him. You know, why, why are we getting so little for Yosef? So he writes, Isrim Kesef, Neshed me Eved, Bederech Knas, Hushloshim Shkalim, Ze Shinim Krab Bichashai, Uvgneva 
that because it was a secretive sale and not a public auction, they had to then they, they were take a hit. They had to take a hit on uh, on a third. They got a discount. A discount Yosef because again. Because because of it was done bichashai again because so so I'm just again pointing out that the the secretive nature of this whole story and now let me get to a couple more things one is that it's interesting that secrets which are told which is very often lashon hara the Gemara in Yoma says that what brings about forgiveness for this it's the ktoret uktoret mechaperet in yes dohatani Rabbi Chananya. We learn that the ktoret, the incense, brings about forgiveness. That the ktoret brings forgiveness. Let something which is done in secret, the, the ktoret is brought in the inner part of the Beit HaMikdash secretly, let something done secretly and bring and bring about Forgiveness for something that was said secretly, and and by the way, when Yosef does get sent down to Egypt, the other things is is, is full of uh, of something of incense. So anybody wants to work on a Dvar Torah, you realize this is actually the the path to try to explain this. Going back now to what I said from the very beginning, that Yaakov again, this is the approach of Chazal. Yaakov wants, we're back on the deathbed, we're back in Vayichi. Yaakov wants to give the, tell them what will happen in the future. So it says, Come around and I'm going to tell you, He wanted to tell them the end of days. And over here, the end of days really means the end of days. And Yosef, sorry, and Yaakov lost that ability to see the future. Amar, and then now it continues and tells us the narrative of what Yaakov was experiencing at this point. Maybe one of my kids is the problem. Maybe just like Avram had a Yishmael and Yitzchak had a Esav, maybe my kids are not what I think they are. All of the kids then said, Now, the Shema Yisrael is their father's name or title, and they say, listen, Dad, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Achad, no, we believe in one God. Amru, kishem she'en bilibcha ele achad, just like in your heart there's only one God, kach e'en bilibcha ele achad. Boto sha'ah patach Yaakov avinu v'amar, at that moment Yaakov said, according to the Rambam, it's shevach, he says, praise to God, and he says, baruch shem kavod machot olam ve'ed. So therefore the baruch shem is not there in parshat where the Shema is taught, what should we do? Should we say it? Moshe didn't say it. We, shouldn't, we don't say it. But Yaakov did say it. So what do we do? So, so therefore, that's why we whisper the Baruch Shem Kavod Ba'ed. So, Whisper when we say Shema Yisrael out loud, and then we whisper the next line, Baruch Shem Kavod Machotol Ed, because it's kind of a compromise between ya- Yaakov saying it and Moshe not saying it. So then we say it as a uh, as 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 a whisper. 
Okay, it's very good wine Yom Kippur. So the, there are more elements. The question is how much to go into the halacha over here. Uh, I will note the Targum Yerushalmi in Source 29, and I will tell you that Rabbi Soloveitchik was fond of this uh, Targum Yerushalmi. It explains everything we just now read in the Gemara, but it does one thing, but it's, it does it in Aramaic. So as it tells the whole story in Aramaic, Again, Anna, they, they tell the thing, Avram had, had this, he had Yishmael and Bnei Keturah, and Yitzchak had Esav, and you know, maybe you're also, you don't believe in God. And they all then say together, Shema Minan Yisrael Avunin, listen, our father Israel, making it very clear who they're talking to. Hashem Elokanna Hashem Chad, right? Like, Hashem Elokanna Hashem Chad, God is one. Ani Yaakov Avunin, Yaakov their father then said, Va'amar, and what did he say? Yeheshme Rabbi Mavarach, no, it's the, the same. Thing. It's the same in Aramaic. Baruch Sheah. So that's very interesting. But that's it's 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 the Aramaic for Baruch Shem Kavod Machtolam Vaed. Although, and this is what's interesting, you look at the Gemara in source thirty, it says, Amr Vishubin Levi, Kola One, Amen Yeheshme Rabim Varch Bikol Kolcho. If you say it with all of your strength, we'll see you second what all of your strength means. Korin Logzardino. It cancels negative things that you've done. It rips up the any accusations against you. The Shulchanarach rules, what does that mean Bikolcho Kolcho? Very bottom of the page, Villa Anot Oto Bikolram. It means to say it out loud. So again, now I'm pointing out the irony is that the Baruch shame we say very softly, but the Yeheshme Rabbah Mavarach we say we say very loudly. Um, one of the ideas of the Baruch shame is that in the Beit Hamikdash, whenever the Shem Hashem was said, the response to the Shem Hashem was Baruch shame. You should remember this, if not from the Mishnah and the Gemara in Yoma, you should remember this from the davening on Yom Kippur in the Musaf, where it says, and the Kohanim, and, whatever, and then the Kohen Gadol would say, the Shem Hashem HaMufrash HaGadol HaKadosh, and everyone would fall on their faces and say, Baruch Shem Kavod Malchut Olam Be'ed, which means that the Baruch Shem is a response to the Shem Hashem, and it's interesting, so maybe that's what Yaakov is doing. He's responding, Yaakov does it out loud. So... There's also this thing about it maybe belonging, you know, on Yom Kippur, we're like angels, right? We dress in white and so on. It's really maybe a prayer of the angels. There are other midrashim about this. We'll, we'll just leave it there now. But I do find it very interesting that not only is there a, 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 in a, some claim that Moshe Rabbeinu heard the angel saying this and he took it down. It was a secret that he took down from heaven. And we can't say it out loud because we're afraid the angels will get upset with us. There, there is this uh, way of understanding it. It's one of the prayers of the angels. But nonetheless, if you look at all the things in this week's parasha, it's one, it's one of, there's more. It's one of the things that actually becomes part of our daily service. The other one is not daily service, but is weekly service. And that is the way that you give brachot, Yisim Chalukim Ephraim Chemenasha, is also something which emerges from over here. That's why it's in Aramaic, because... Aramaic. The, the, exactly, 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 exactly. Okay, let's go now to source 32. We're getting towards the end. Okay? Ostensibly, Yaakov dies. Yaakov finished commanding his children. It sounds like he died. Yosef falls on top of him and he, and he cries and he kisses him. Yet Yaakov was told by God that go down to Egypt and Yosef will be with you and he will be the one, he, he, will, clo- he will be with you when you die. It's to try to describe a, a kind of a death with, um, 
with some kind of compassion. Going back to the point here, Yosef is dead. Sorry, Yaakov is dead. Later on in source 32, 33, And now we're at the very end of the book. Yosef says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die now. And God is going to remember you. And you're going to be taken out. Or and he makes them promise. You know, remember me, right? God, remember you, and don't forget me. The Nitziv in 34 says on that earlier verse, right? He falls. His father said he died, right? If you look at 32 again. But by the way, don't be fooled. 32 is the last Pasuk in chapter 49, and then the first Pasuk in chapter 50, but they, it's, I can't break them up. And he start, ended blessing them, and, or, or instructing them, and then he dies, and then Pasuk Aleph, his Yosef, falls on him, and he cries on him, and he kisses him. So the Ramban, sorry, the, the Emek Davar, the Nitziv, explaining that says, Yosef it seems that Yosef was the closest one to Yaakov right before he died. And Yaakov tells Yosef over one last secret. Okay? So now now now, now we get to identify the secret. And that is that he says, oh, God is going to remember you. And he knew that this was the sign of the gula. How does Yosef know more than the rest of the brothers? Yosef received from Yaakov this secret, which all the brothers didn't, which was apparently whispered to him. That it's like that last moment before the flame goes out, there was one last secret that Yaakov told, and that secret gets passed on to Yosef. In, uh, the, let's read carefully, 35, the Datskin of Baliatosef. Anochi gidvarecha. Yaakov asks Yosef to take him out and bury him. Midrash, kishem mikan that I will do as you did, I, I will do as you did, I, I will do as your words, Anochi kidvarecha, I will do as your words, means the simple meaning is, I will fulfill your request and have you buried, but he understands it also as meaning that I will do the same thing as you, I will say the words that you have said, and therefore Yosef's also going to ask to be taken out. And therefore he tells over the secret. The reason I'm here is not so much that Yosef is repeating the same thing, but he's going back to the secret of Pakod Yifkod. And he said, essentially, he's not saying like the Nitziv that he picked up this secret in the last moment of Yaakov's life. But he says, but he knows the secret. Let me explain. Look at source 36. Vishamu Likolecha. This is Moshe, who's at the burning bush, and he's told, go tell the people that your time of redemption has come. Rashi. Mikaven Chetomar Lehem Lashon Zeh, Yishmu Likolecha. When you say these words, right, God has remembered you. Yifkod Elokim Etchem. 
God has remembered you. Poked Yifoked, that again, saying it in, in a double, Shekvar Siman Zemasur Biyadam, Miyakov Miyosef. This secret was passed on to the next generations from Yaakov and Yosef. Again, nobody else knows it, and that's why it's claiming that at some point Yaakov only told the secret to Yosef, which is great that the story ends with this uh, secret as well. I'll just end up today in Source 37 and 38, which is all based upon Source 39. Source 39 is which goes back we're going to end the book. We'll go back to the very beginning of the book. What you now realize is the the whole ending of the book is the secrets after secrets after secrets, and some of the secrets are kept secret, and some of the secrets are passed on, and some of the secrets were question if anybody ever know, knew about. Yosef becomes the subject of the secret, and Yosef becomes the one who reveals secrets. And the Zohar, which the Rikanati in 37 quotes the Zohar in 38, by the way, if you don't know this, the Rikanati is the first printed book to ever quote the Zohar. And over here he quotes a Zohar saying, and I'm going to read the Hebrew translation in 38, And I know that that did not necessarily make as much sense as if you have wanted it to make sense, but if you go back and read in the Rekhanati, he tells us something. The world is created through ten statements, right? Where God says ten things. According to Chazal, the first of the ten statements is Bereshit. But Bereshit is not said. Bereshit is, Vayihi Or is said, but Bereshit isn't said. And actually, Bereshit, it's more uh, of, of a thought, as it were. But it's this point between the infinite God and then creating a finite universe. And I'm not going to get too complicated or philosophical or mystical, but there's this moment of creation from the infinite to the finite. And the shift between the infinite and the finite is what the Zohar is saying is that that is the ultimate secret. That's the first secret which which exists, which means what he's really telling us. And as I said, the Rakanati spells us out a little bit more. Maybe I'll read this. The very first of the ten statements of creation doesn't have any words. It's a silent you know, l- later on, one of the great mystical studies will be called the, mis- the mystery of the Merkava, or the chariot. And in the chariot, one of the things will be something called chashmal. Chashmal is chash and mal, according to the Zohar, which is spoken silence, or for fans of Simon and Garfunkel, the sounds of silence. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that when somehow things are communicated without words, but that idea that Yecheskel sees on the river, Kfar, where he sees these signs and understanding of God, it goes back to this first creation where there is no speech. Even though it's one of the ten sayings, there's no verbalization. It's just bereshit. And then he quotes the Zohar, but essentially what he's saying is that the book of Bereshit is a book uh, that begins with a secret, and the secret is creation. And creation is something that we don't understand. So what I spent most of today trying to explain is the whole end of the book of Bereshit and all the secrets which are going all the way through, and as I said, some revealed, some metastasizing into conspiracies, some becoming something which is quite dangerous. But we also end up with a secret, which is a secret of life. It's a secret of hope. It's a secret that God, who created this world and created nature, and that's really the important thing about the book of Shemot, 
is that suddenly God is going to descend into this world, become active in this world, and miracles are going to take place, the like that we don't see in the book of Bereshit, and God is going to become involved in history, and there's going to be a manifestation, and there's going to be plagues, and there's going to become the splitting of the sea, and this nation that's stuck over here, again, there's a secret there, and the secret is that God is going to come, God is going to show up, God is going to be revealed, and that secret's going to be manifest, and suddenly there's going to be a very different type of secret being revealed, and that's going to become the Exodus, which means the end of Bereshit, therefore, tells this secret, which is going into the book of Shemot. But again, I've pointed out that the very beginning of Bereshit was with a secret, but that's very secret to the sense we don't even know the words. It's Bereshit, and there's no words are used over there because there's the secret. And God, therefore, whispers something inaudible, and then everything comes afterwards, that now there's a secret which is whispered from, from Yaakov to Yosef, which is completely appropriate, and then from Yosef to the brothers by saying, don't give up. This is the end of the book, but there's a whole other book coming, and that book's going to be really exciting. <laughs>